Good morning and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early Lichtenhauer longsword glosses. I'm your host, Mike Smorridge, and joining us this week are Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. Um, this is episode four um, of our little mini-series on MS3227A, Dobringer, so pseudo-Dobringer, Polhouse book, whatever you want to call it. Last week, we were planning to march through all of the contents of the book and look at how much of it's glossed or unglossed and how it differs from RDL. And in a move that surprised nobody, we bit off way more than we could chew. And got uh, halfway through the halfway through the the text, a third of the way through the zettel, something like that. Um, we were on the the fair house section, the across cut. And um, what we could say about that was that the the pole version of the text implies that maybe you could use either edge from either side while doing the Tverhau, which is in contrast to RDL. Then after that we move on to what? The the shield how the squinter. Before we go there though, I want to uh amend something I said last week, which is Steve said that the understanding of foreign knock does not line up with RDL. And I mostly agreed with that, and I think I was short-selling 3227A, um, and I want to explain why. Uh, so the the standard understanding of foreign knock that's pretty mainstream in HEMA uh, does not line up with 3227A, but I think that's not the only way to read RDL. So we usually have an idea that there's this paradigm of, in, a, in any fencing exchange, one person is in the four and one person is in the knock. And the person in the four is forcing the person in the knock to re react. And that's like or knock 101. But the text is actually very ambiguous on those points. And that's a whole lot of interpretation that we've built out of not very many words describing what four and knock are um, in Lichtenauer's teachings. So it, there's another way to read what is in RDL, which is that there is a single action which happens in the four and everything after that is knock. It says that all of the techniques and plays are in the knock. Um, so you could say that one person has the four and maintains the four, but through aggression and attacking and so on, or seeking the openings. And the other person is in the knock and trying to become in the four. But you could also look at it and say, the person who initiates has the four, and then both fencers are fencing in the knock thereafter. And I think that's consistent with the text in RDL, even though it's not the common interpretation. And that is what Forschlag and Nachschlag are describing. So there is an attack, which is the Forschlag, which initiates, and then both fencers are completing to defeat the other one in the Nach, which is everything after the Forschlag. Um, so there are many different ways to understand foreign Nach based on the RDL very brief descriptions. And I think that's one of them. And that one is consistent with 3227A. So, you could look at it as 3227A clarifying which one is correct, but you could also look at it as taking a very specific reading of Lichtenauer's teachings and running with it and ignoring all the other ones. Um, and that's what I wanted to put in there. So I would say that it could be consistent with RDL depending on how you read RDL, but it could also be completely inconsistent. And I don't know what the right answer is. Yeah. Yes. Do I get a rebuttal? So does T, if he wants. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, for the after, it says 
when he comes sooner than you with the hue so that you must parry him, work, blah, blah, blah. So, I don't know. To me, that just seems like the person who's being attacked is not. Okay. Um, I want to... Wait, T, did you want to respond? Because I'm going to ask a different uh, question about Force no, Log and not I don't have any particular... Uh, I think it's a viable-ish reading. Uh, I don't believe it, but that's a different case. So Danzig is the one who says that the after is all counters and against all technique and strikes the opponent strikes against. So anything that counters anything else is not by that definition. Um, and then we can also we can also play around with the, the idea oh. that can you go from knock to four? And I think Ringek says yes, and Danzig implies that you can't. But that's something we've talked about at length in other episodes. Um, so, but yeah, so Jodonjic is the one who says that oh. everything that is a counter to something is knocked by definition. Well, Lev doesn't say yeah. that, and he leaves the he's most interpretation, too. and he's my There's favorite. Boss, so, guys. <laughs> so I guess it, it could be, uh, um, it could be interpreted that way. Um, I personally yeah, don't so interpret think, it that way, but it could be. a will line up with um, an okay. interpretation of RDL, if not the best one. Maybe the best one. Yeah. Let me ask you a question about Force Log and Nox Log that I wanted to last time, but I forgot. Um, for everybody in the room, I guess. Um, does the Force Log have to be uh, the first attack thrown? The text is ambiguous. There's one place where it says if he comes to you with the Force Log or any first Schlag, any first strike. Um, and that could be read as one of the places where he's giving synonyms because he loves doing a uh, rhetorical technique where he gives two different words for the same thing. So, you know, he says proposed and created, and he says all these things where he gives you two pairs of verbs. And so you could say, okay, so the, the force log or first strike is saying that the force log is the first strike, or you could say that he's just setting it up that in this case, it doesn't have to be the force log, any initiating action. Uh, in which case, the force log is only strikes that compel the opponent to parry, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that the text is not perfectly clear there. I don't think that the force log has to be the first one. I think it, the force log is the one that is forcing the opponent to engage with you in some way. And you can wave your sword around all you want before that. Um, but if it's not a strike that actually compels the opponent to respond, then it's not the force log. But I can't 100% support that from the text. I might say something like the first credible uh, strike or whatever, like the, yeah. the first strike that's like really going for something. It's the first strike that actually begins an exchange and isn't just bullshit. And it could be, and so there's all, it's also not clear that a strike <laughs> which just hits the opponent and doesn't have any response would be considered a force log. Like I'm not I think that that seems true intuitively, well, but the text doesn't ever describe you yeah. hit him and then you go home because you're done. Well, the text is always describing it in the context of he responds to your attack in some way. Well, obviously, if they didn't feel compelled to parry it, then it's not a Vorschlag. Right, so if you just stab him in the eye, then that may or may not be a force log, really. Yeah, 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 they, they weren't compelled to defend it, and apparently people are compelled to defend attacks in this. So, I mean, I would probably say that and that, that would still be a force log, but it's, again, not clear. 
the the way I've always interpreted it is that like if you just throw a cut and hit them right away, yeah. then the five words I mean, don't matter. The five words are for when there's a bind yeah, and something RDL goes wrong. RDL doesn't really discuss that situation much either. Of uh, if you directly attack them and then you hit them and you win, that's sort of a gap in the outline of how fencing works in these books. To say the least. <laughs> so, in in my head canon, I would like for a force log to be like that, to just be any action, an action of, like an action of uh, advantage. I think what I I like looked up, I tried to look up force log and like different meanings that it could have, and like strike of advantage was one of them, which could be the first strike, but also could be like you were saying the for like. Yeah, it has First a lot non wishy washy strike, I guess. We dive into the linguistics, which oh. maybe we, Mike doesn't care enough about for us to do that. But <laughs> because schlag is a word that means so many things, um, right outside of a fencing context, then for schlag also gets pulled into that. You know, it means things like an argument is a for schlag and a response is a not schlag, um, for example. Or there's something about how a smith in his workshop will have one person keeping rhythm. Um, with a hammer, and then everybody else is actually hammering the metal. And the person who's just hitting a, the blank surface to keep rhythm is giving the four schlag, and everybody who's following along is giving the knock schlag. And there's various other things that are like that, which is why I, I decided on leading strike and following strike in my translation instead of before strike and after strike, because it kind of gives that sort of sequential meaning that we see in these pairs. But it, it it turns out it was a word that gets used in a lot of contexts, and but no other fencing treatise uses it in a fencing context. So the meaning is uh, is a little bit open for analysis there. I think in modern German it means suggestion. It's an interesting connotation if you choose to translate it like that. So I suggest totally that the correct translation this. of Vorschlag is invitation. Mm, nah, 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 nah. Yeah, yeah, I'm not buying it. All right. Well, I guess now that we've, if we've got any the conversation, we should probably talk about the shield here. Um, there's a couple of extra little couplets in the poem here, which uh, don't add too much. Squint against the right if you decide to strongly fence, which I don't really. I don't know. As a translation, uh, the squint UI prize if it does not arrive too lazily. Why not? Yeah, interesting. Sorry. As I say, the, the gloss repeats the things with um, you need to uh, do the shield how fully and long enough and shoot the point firmly. Otherwise, they'll change through underneath it. And the stepping instructions are a little bit different. The shield how instructed to step well out to the side whereas before it was at the opponent or to the opponent mm -hmm. so there's, there's an interesting thing here which is this is one of the glosses that's very definitely incomplete and we know that because the last word is and mm -hmm. um, which implies that there was going to be more to it because it reaches the end of the line with the word and and then stops um, but that extra line about uh, Lands to the right if you want to fence well is interesting to me because it implies well there are other texts that have a a, a 
sort of an eye feint in which you look at one side and attack the other. We see this in, in the Kölner Fecht book and in some, some, um, some other non-Lichtenauer texts. And it could be that his whole thing, that, that that extra verse was going to relate to a play that was never written down um, about why you're squinting or, or looking to the right. Um, but we don't know because he didn't finish writing whatever he was going to write in this one. What's interesting is that there's the second of those added couplets, he prizes the shield how if it isn't too lazy. When he then moves on to to have the Scheiselhaus Zettel, the part he Zettel, he has exactly the same couplet about the the peak cut. Mm-hmm. The other peak no, he prizes as well. Yeah. With no gloss. Well done. Um, before we, we go on to the fear for Setson, I also want to point out something that we didn't get to in the Krumpau, which I was just reminded of, which is that a different interpretation of the verse about cut short and uh, Krump not, because he does, so which in, in RDL is about a, the Krumpau where you do a feint and mm-hmm. you pull your Krumpau short and then you go underneath with a changing through. What he says is don't ever, don't, you shouldn't ever Krump short but if it happens, then you have changing through as an option. So in his interpretation, this is not a tactic you can use or a specific play. It's just general advice that if you crimp land short, then changing through is an option. Um, and both of those things are very true and actionable. So it's interesting to get a second opinion on what the Lichtenauer verse means. And we Ooh. see that in a few other places as well. But that's one of the, the really obvious ones to me because... He doesn't dress it up at all. He basically just paraphrases the title as a sentence and adds in a couple clarifying words. So we also talked about footwork a little bit yeah. last last episode. And one of the things was um, PT27A's possibly paradoxical obsession with stepping offline to the right. Um, in this one, but the shield how it specifically says to step to the right. And that's a rare case where we're given footwork for a technique, I guess. But it is in contrast to RDL, which tells you to step to the other there, person. Right. This one, so, yeah. Um, right. Uh, via Lega, the four positions. Uh, so it's worth mentioning the Scheidelhau despite the fact that he saved four pages for it, has no gloss. Another and mystery. Just that one extra verse that says nothing. Another mystery unsolved. I really want to know what that four-page title how gloss was going to be. Allowed. It was going to be illustrations, Michael. You know that. <laughs> it was going to reveal all the secrets of how you actually counter Ulber. Yeah. Well, this is the thing with the four. It's just going to be a whole bunch of like half-sword grappling plays. Yeah. His yeah. Ulber is different, isn't it? The guards are different. It is. Well, that's interesting. Does he mention Plough in the Schiller section? I'm not sure he does. So, uh, so this book's Plough is what we'd normally call Alba, the point forwards upon the earth or to the side. Uh, you do still uh, have Trayer to the Oxen Plough earlier, interestingly. Yeah. Um, that ox, verse is unchanged. Ox is still regular ox. The fool always breaks whatever one hews or stabs. Is that? That must be a new line couplet. Yeah. Yep. Uh, 
with hanging strokes and horizon and that's glyph. So the fool in this case, so basically plow and fool have swapped positions. Yeah, the fool is the uh, lower hanging. Yes, and Fontag is long point. True. Which there's different ideas about what that means. Some people no. have said that it's long point because if you stretch your arms up over your head in Vomtag, then it's like you're holding long point, but yeah. I guess rotated 90 degrees. Ah, but this Vomtag long point can also be called the hanging over the head. Mm -hmm. So I... there's also the posture in Clooney, which is the point in front of you raised at an mm. angle, which I think is what's being described here of the yeah. point forward Vomtag. Too bad we don't have Jess here. I think she and I have argued about this before, and she thinks that it's the point back version being explained weird. Well, the so point it's, it's is worth saying that this isn't the, the only text that has jumbled guard positions or unusual confusion of the guard names. Clooney has this it. This is not the only text that does that because Hunt's middle um, is similar uh, in as much as he has. His uh, guard with the point on the ground is still plow, but his alber is the same as RDL ox, and his um, ox is the same as RDL plow, I believe. And I have to go back and look. And, that's, and those pairings are also in Clooney Factbook, which in fact has both sets of names, the, the hunt middle names and the RDL names for each guard. So... There were at least three different people who thought that this was how the guards worked, or some version of it. Well, the the middle one is obviously correct, because Ox is clearly the foolish guard, because nobody uses it. <laughs> that's a good point. Uh, and Steve. obviously, with your, your sword with your point on the ground, that's like you're plowing with your sword, right? So that makes sense. Yeah. Steve, what does um, York Wilhelm Hutter have, the crazy hat man? He okay. has all the same guards as RDL. Except he does the Clooney version. Yeah, okay. Yeah, outboard up, like mirror of Albert, I guess. Sort of a 45 degree angle in front of you. So you're threatening with the edge still, but the point is directed forward and up. Um, right, let's Basically move on. the same as people do for Kron a lot of the time. It's pretty much from Flukenor, just like lift it up a bit more. I think Clooney. Yeah, I think the Clooney. Uh, there's like a little caption written in that says like um these are like it names the four guards like RDL and it says like that uh Hans Madel calls them this, I don't this, think and it that. Mentions Hans is that Clooney? Name. Or... I think it just says others. But yeah, it is, it is Clooney that has that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it, it that, the, maybe it was a thing. This could be the secrets of Hans Some Hans. people thought. Or there was dis general disagreement the interesting between thing people. Is that if we look at, at like actual portrayals of the guards, we don't have that many different version or sort of testaments of what they're actually talking about. We've got pictures from Ringek and Danzig, you know, one manuscript each. We've got Paulus Cal, who does basically similar to RDL, but his Fontag is a little bit weird. Um, I'd say to fit on the page, but you've got Clooney. Yeah, he he holds it straight up, but with his hands uh, sort of at or above his shoulder, so mm. sort of like walkie-talkie bumtog, but straight up like He-Man. 
Um, and you've got the Clooney, York Wilhelm, um, that sort of tradition, which disagrees on some of the naming assignments, but holds Von Tug very differently. And then you've got Paulus Hector and, and Joachim Meyer, and that's basically the whole Lichtenauer tradition that shows us guards with names. So I think I went and I found about eight unique pictures of what the guards look like, and the names are somewhat inconsistent between them. So when we talk about what the four guards are, we're mostly basing it on RDL. And then Joachim Meyer like agrees 70%, although his plow is different. It's just vaguely similar. And he doesn't have shoulder bump tug at all. He has Nornhut, et cetera, et cetera. So he's, he does things that are sort of compatible. And so we sort of assumed that RDL are therefore the right answer. But I think that it's what it's it's something we really should be more clear of. This is a version of the Lichtenauer tradition for guards, not Lichtenauer's own truth. And the people in the Lichtenauer tradition did not actually generally agree, as far as we can tell. Or the four names of guards yeah, transcended I mean, they, they the Lichtenauer tradition. Something Lichtenauer picked up it's from just somewhere what else. It's a place where there's more variation than most people are comfortable thinking about. So let's move on. To... So I think he kind of, at the beginning of this, the four bigger four uh, card section, he kind of says that there's little to say about them. And like Lichtenauer doesn't really care about cards. Yeah, which, so is, which is part of the, the literally standard say that. Lichtenauer teaching in HEMA, right? That guards are bad and you shouldn't focus on guards, but I don't think RDL bash guards as much as he does. That he didn't bash guards, but there's generally but there is a general sense that like you know it it kind of shirks the common um like here are the guards, here are the techniques from the guards. That was that's pretty common in like right but they say other these sources are the only I guess four guards you should so, use. Um, but I think 3227A is the source of the idea that Lichtenauer doesn't want you to stand in guards. Am I wrong, T? I think at yeah. least half. I can't think of another quote from um, hand, and I suspect 3227A is reinforced by people taking bad ideas from frequency motors. Hmm. I think Meyer, too, says like you should switch That's from guard to guard. Yeah, I think he probably does. That sounds familiar. Um, but he 327A is the only text that gives this Lichtenauer proverb that whoever lies still is dead and whoever moves is still alive, um, which he uses to say that you should not wait in a guard, um, which is the only Lichtenauer quote that's not part of the main Zettel that I think any Lichtenauer text offers. All right, let's move on. Via yeah. Versetzen. Four parries, four displacements. Are not remotely the same as any other text. Yeah, so normally these are like the crimp how beats ox, the shield how beats plow, the scheitel how beats alba, and what's the last one? Help me out here, guys. Is it Zorn how against Vomtag? Or the shield no, uh, how Oh, yeah, that makes way more sense. All right, thank you very much. The Zornhau doesn't beat anything. Uh, in this case, however, um, it takes the the same Zettel with a couple of extra lines, which don't add terribly much. Yep. And then says there's 
four displacements on both sides. Uh, one upper parry, one lower parry. They break and disrupt all guards and positions, and however you from above or below carry off or reject someone's blah blah blah, that may as well be called the Thetan. Right, so he keys off something he's brought up before, which is that all strikes come from four main strikes, which are diagonal cuts from both sides, from above and below. And he thinks that all fencing ultimately goes back to that, and which is one of the ways that the sword revolves around the point, around the middle, etc., etc. And so here, his fear for Zetson is just using his four basic cuts to parry your opponent. Um, do you think that's more elegant, or do you think that that's theory hammer? As a judgment call, do you prefer this to RDL? No, this is full of Underhouse, and Underhouse suck. I don't really like you. T, how could you of all people suck about yeah. rising cuts that way? I'm pretty sure I've been in events where you've taught workshops on rising cuts. Yeah, but only like good rising cuts, the short edge ones. <laughs> Them sweeps. How do you know this isn't short edge cuts? Because this guy loves his long edge cuts. He talks about it all over the place. He's like, you should do everything with a long edge. It specifically says long edge here. Turn away all cuts and thrusts with the front edge. Um, the same with pairing. Um, I'm not really super enamored by either of them, yeah. to be honest. For the reason that T said. I think trying to cut up like that with a long edge Unterhau into a parry. Especially doing that like, as an attack against someone in talk. That's the only good way to actually crimp someone on the hands is when they do that. Yeah, I've, I've never liked rising long edge cuts. People always want me to do them when I'm practicing cutting, and I usually refuse. Um, I don't think they're good for anything, but other people seem to be very successful with them, so I don't understand it. Um, I, I think, think cutting is the only thing they are good for. Short edge cuts are better in basically every possible way. Yeah, my bad. The other... If I need my sword to go from above to below, that's what I do. From below to above. I mean, from below to above, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I also agree with Steve that I don't really like the RDL one either because it basically just makes people do like technique rock, paper, scissors, which is a sucky way to fence. Um, yeah. So. All right, let's move on from this crap bit of gloss. Uh, I will say the... that I think that this section is more consistent with the rest of. When you look at RDL on the gloss, mm. the Fear Fezetsin actual gloss paragraph has nothing to do with the rest of the section on Fezetsin, which is all about doing real parries against attacks and how to continue from being parried and things like that. And you get into Anzetsin and some of those things. And the whole breaking guards is just sort of a weird red herring. Whereas here, he starts talking about parries and then he continues talking about parries the whole time. So I think that that's at least a more cogent gloss of this section and more self-consistent, whether or not the parries he's describing are the best way to parry, which they're probably not, unless you're doing a very specific kind of long edge pet parry, which is basically a Zornha or maybe a Krumpa. Anyways, that's all I had to say about that. Moving on, Nat Kryzen chasing after a whole bunch more couplets. Um, generally about the same old stuff, following up all hits, uh, keeping your point against their face, um, and no gloss. Uberlaufen. Shoot with your entire body so that your point stays on. Yeah. Uberlaufen, similar story. Uh, extra couple of couplets, no gloss. 
Um, the, but then again, like the, these couplets are weird. Whoever, ah, uh, I guess that you could read uh, Druk Neda differently to be like whoever presses you down below, then you can overrun them. Um, like that's that's an interesting one because the plays of of Uberlauf and an RDL are about you pressing them down, not the yeah. other way around. So I don't know if that he was going to add like a weird counter to Uberlauf in there or something, but it seems mm. like it's switching roles. Yeah, well, I was having a quick look at Talhofer because I don't want to be happy. And he has a the play from the, the sweep where basically you um, hang and snap, and he had a weird name for it. Let's see if I can find it again just super quickly. Um, can I find it? Thanks for listening to the podcast. The podcast where Mike rolls through Wixenhauer. The podcast where you get to listen to us reading books silently, <laughs> trying to find quotes. No, never mind. So there is a there is a strange Uberlaufen interpretation that's around. Yeah, um, here we go. Uber, Uber fallen is what Talhofer calls it. Mm. There's Which. a version of Uberlaufen where you run over his hand with your pommel that's in a lot of 16th century texts instead of the you know, he hits you low, you hit him high interpretation. You're running over him, his sword or wrist, with your sword, and therefore it's also uberlaufen. That mm. seems disconnected from this, any RDL concept. Well, it's this general concept of, like, flowing over. The, the illustration uh, from Harry at one point was the idea of, like, when, when water spills over the top of a dam, that's uberlaufen. Yep. Uh, and it's... It, it, yeah, then coming over is in uh, your Wilhelm. It just a, points to the fact that these are common school. verbs. And just because Lichtenauer has a special meaning or RDL have a special meaning for a verb, it's still mm -hmm. a general part of the German language. And other guys are just going to use it as the way they would use it in everyday speech. And we see that in other cases as well, where it's like, yeah, this is a word and they speak German. So that's why they're using a German word here. Mm -hmm. right. Not because it's secret knowledge. Next section. Absetson, uh, no gloss again, one extra couplet. Turn your point against their face. Warren, no that's gloss. That's good advice. Yeah. yeah uh, that's actually really, really good advice because it implies that you don't have your point against their face initially. Right? <laughs> this fits point yeah. offline Absetson as opposed yeah. to the stupid, like, counter thrust with your point in the center Absetson mm -hmm. that is Ansetson and everybody teaches and works kind of shittily. Um, yeah. And that is one of the more common couplets that he adds to things is in every lesson, turn your point against his face. So that's just your basic move when you get into a situation, try and turn his dad in the face. I, I kind of have a wild uh, theory or thought, I guess, that I don't know what we count as, that Abvenden is kind of his stand in for Abzetzen. Which we get to the turning away of the point or deflecting or what however. I think we talked turning about it last side, week yeah. a little bit. Whacking off. But we'll, we'll get there in a minute. Yeah. Right. Next section actually has Probably some more like ten minutes actually based on it's the yeah, it's the changing through Dutch Wexel. Uh extra couple of couplets. Uh when you've Dutch Wexeled. Um slash stab and wind 
don't do it lazily uh don't hew to the sword change through with that watch could also be protect monday um or is this cloth say anything interesting yes it gives actionable advice for once which is to shoot your point in to their left side so that's like um, right, and he tells you to when you stab, aim for the little gap or window between his edge and his hilt. Um, if you hit, you have won. Yeah. So I like that visualization for how tight you're changing through should be. It's not just get to the other side, but you're really moving around and stabbing right next to where his sword is. So the other thing which uh, to visualize. No, that that's that's the the original like Zornort, isn't it? And then if he parries that, then you sink your point down from the same side under his sword and around to the other side, not wide around. But, but. So yeah, the original, so, but it's still telling you, like, whoa, that you're aiming, where you're aiming that zone ought to land. The other thing about the, the little window is that a lot of the time, you see this a lot with people when you've got them biting on a feint on one side, is when they try to come back to parry, they basically parry mostly with their point, and their hilt kind of stays in place a lot, because you can move your point a lot faster than you can move your hilt. And so often that means that if you go right next to their hilt, they don't actually close the line there, right? So if you thrust on somebody's inside, like, you know, towards their chest, and they come across to parry, and then you come underneath and thrust behind towards more towards their shoulder, they'll come across quite high with their point, and they'll often leave their hands across on the same side, and you can just stab straight through and they won't actually clear it at all. Um, so it's a really reliable way to hit. That's the bad six. Um, yeah, it's bad sixed. Um, someone who does good sixth, this doesn't work on. Well, if they offense 3227A, they won't be using sixth at all. We worked out the other day on Discord that the guy who we'll 3227A had never actually seen someone who can do good sixth, which is why he always tells you to do tierce and why he says that you should stab people when they try to do bad sixth. Yeah. Oh, Tears Gang. So. And then... Welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we discuss modern Olympic fencing terms. Yeah, all because of some meme on the Discord, which is basically, which edge is it better to defend your outside with? And the answer is the one that you can get to work. Next section. Shocking. Shocking. Uh, Zukan, no gloss, one extra couplet. Um, following gloss, Dirtschlaufen, running through. No gloss, an extra couplet. About inverting if he grabs for the pommel. That's interesting. Run through and shove, invert if he grabs for the pommel. Cool. Uh, then we have Abschneiden, which has loads of extra couplets. Four extra couplets. Um, which have strange messages. I don't, I don't know what they're, what he's trying to express with these couplets. And sadly, he doesn't gloss them. Yeah, he, he's got a whole lot about crosses and crosses, so um, spares and quotes, whatever. Next section, hand pressing, uh, with many extra couplets one, two, three, four, five extra couplets. What does he have to say about hand pressing? Anything new? Yes, he has a completely different take on hand pressing from anybody else. Which is true of every single description of hand pressing. This is like the part of the title that everybody chose their own adventure on, um, because we don't really have a definitive version of it anywhere. Like the RDL version is pretty unique to that text, and so is this one. He thinks that it's about parrying, 
so in RDL, it's basically a continuation of Abschneiden. You, you get the upper and lower slices in the Abschneiden section, and then Überlaufen, which is its own separate, or not Überlaufen, Händedrucken, which is its own separate Hauptstück, is you can do the upper and lower slices together, the end, and that's the whole section. So it's strange. And here it's also strange, um, but he introduces the term Abwenden, which Steve seems like he has thoughts on. And his idea of turning, of pressing the hands is turning your hands and pressing your sword into his attack as a parry. And he uses the, ver the, uh, the verb abwenden to describe de um, deflecting I'm or sorry. turning aside your opponent's strike with the long edge. So completely unrelated to what RDL have to say about this section. Yeah. yeah. I guess I mentioned before that I feel like this is his stand-in for and seems like a similar idea. Push away their attack and then stab. But this is always with the long edge. So he's Kierskang all day, front, every day. The forward edge always of the sword is called the true edge, edge, and all cuts and thrusts are spoiled by its turning. Well, the German word <laughs> there is Becht, which the right means edge. correct. Or, <laughs> the just yeah. edge. No, the yeah, right, right or because he's pairing with it yeah. to your right. Never mind, I'll see myself out. Yeah, I think I feel like edge. if he meant true edge, it would be long or but all right. Anyway, I guess you can. I guess you could translate that as true if you really want to. But yeah, moving on. To... Okay. Anyway, oh, go on, Steve. I'll... Go on, Steve. What were you going to say? Huh? Yeah. Um. I don't know. I just think this is the like one of the coolest parts of his gloss. I think it's cool that he talks about pairing with it, this. It is the, pairing with it the long. Is a very clear, it is a very clear description of it's what we would describe as a basic simple parry, which we don't get in a lot of liquid art texts. Long I think he's right too. Long edge definitely is stronger. But that said, I do think there's play, there's a place for short edge parries of of multiple kinds. I've got nothing to this, add. This section and the fear of Fizetzen are maybe the only places where he's flat out disagreeing completely on a different page from any other gloss. Um, he's on his completely his own way, which is interesting. Um, right, next section, loads of extra couplets, hanging. Um, so the the normal poem, as far as uh, if you've understood this, then they can scarcely come to blows, which sounds like the kind of thing that Paul loves. So then we get one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven extra couplets about hanging. They're uh, they're pretty good actually, pretty good couplets. And then pages and pages of gloss. Some of which is yeah, here he's basically recapping the idea of Vorschlag and Nachschlag, but focused on sort of what happens from the bind. He's very much only interested in Spreckfenster in this section. Yeah. Or the yeah, L kind of is true. too in the hanging. But I think is his uh Spreckfenster different from RDL? Looks like pretty much 
he considers Spreckfenster to be any time you're in a bind. He doesn't define it as a specific position. Which would make um, sense if that position is Vom Tag. He says that, sure. <laughs> he says that Spreckfenster is any any binding position, I guess. Any time that you're using Fulin, you're you're in Spreckfenster. Um, remaining on the sword, waiting, watching for, and noticing whatever he wants to do or whatever he has in mind. Uh, whether it be hard or soft, and orient yourself accordingly. Um, so RDL Spreckfenster w- would be part of his Spreckfenster, and then he goes broader with it. And there's just a whole bunch about hard and soft and being hard against softness and soft against hardness and responding to whatever he does in the bind. Yeah, I don't think there's, I don't no. think there's anything in here about long point, is there? I don't, not that I can recall, I don't see anything. Um, He says, let me read the first paragraph, which might be the only place it would show up. There are two hangers from each side, one over, one under. With them, you come onto your opponent's sword. Um, If it happens that you bind with someone, otherwise come onto his sword, then remain on his sword and wind and stay with him on the sword like that. Um, Boldly and in good spirit without any fear. And then he talks about waiting on the sword to see what his intention is, and that's called a speaking wind. Yep, and then it talks about how you shouldn't wait for them, but attack first. So, thanks, Paul. I know, it just feels contradictory to to me because of the author's obsession with going first. I'm not sure it's completely contradictory. There's definitely like a an extent where, especially in a closer fencing situation, it can be helpful to, if you go first, like, what's the, mm. if, if you go too fast, then you've got no answer for, like, what if they're the about unexpected. to close that line, whereas if you wait just a moment and let them commit to something, then you can hit them mm. in that moment in the place where they're committing away from, right? This is something you see quite a bit in fencing in practice, where somebody kind of as the distance gets closer um you can or especially like if you parry and instantly throw a riposte for example um somebody can essentially counter parry your riposte by pre-planning it Mm because you can't look at what they're doing on your riposte whereas if you hold hold the riposte for just a tiny tiny amount of time you can change targets and hit behind their attempt to counter parry or something so there can be a lot of value to hanging tight for just a just a not even a second, like just a fraction of a second before you really actually go for it, um, and then trying to go first once they're committed to being somewhere silly. I think that what we see here is an, a basic advocacy of what we were calling eyes open fencing. He doesn't have a, the section on Fulin and Indes in the Nakraisen because he doesn't have a class for Nakraisen. And this is the closest that he comes to really talking about that and expressing those ideas is my read on it. So he's not telling you to wait forever, but he is telling you, you know, the same doctrine about you have to make sure you feel the bind and know if he's hard or soft and then do the appropriate thing and don't just act immediately. I I'm I need to take more time for this and read it again. But um I later on I'm reading it more as if uh uh when you execute the four strike you hit or miss so you shall swiftly execute the after strike in one rush before when the opponent comes to any blows. This seems to me like advocating eyes closed stuff more. Mm-hmm. Right. I know. It's... So I think something which often can be a useful strategy is to do like 
have an opening, you know, you have a, a like a one, two. Mm-hmm. And then if your two doesn't work, you pause for just a moment and then you pick like three, four or five off that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you, you do one, two, hit you where you're open as mm-hmm. opposed to like one, two, three. Um, you know, if I, if I run into somebody who like always does attack for how round, I can parry the first two. And then mm-hmm. if they throw back, I'm going to go parry the third one. But if they do their second tour and then they pause for like a tiny moment, I'm probably going to go try and parry their third tour how anyway, and then they can hit me. Uh, there's a... Go ahead, Steve. I... Yeah, I was just going to say that this kind of comes back to the decision-making idea that I think I brought up last week of um, movement, follow-up, backup. So have your movement and follow-up that you're planning on doing and you're going to do no matter what, and that's your four slog and knock slog, which you could say is, you know, eyes closed and doing air quotes. Um, but then at any point, if either of those things fail, you have your backup. And that's going to be your, like, your feeling, fool and in-dust situation where you switch to... So looking Whatever you at this now, I have a thought that I haven't thought before about this, which is this is immediately after the Endage Ruben, and it doesn't talk about attacking your opponent. It only talks about coming onto his sword with a hanger. So this could be the other side of the Forschlag Notchlag equation and explaining what to do if your opponent is doing the Frequens Motus um, continual motion thing, then your job is not to do that, but to get into the bind you're at his intention and then respond. So you're the person who's just parried with one of the hangers rather than being the person who do who the force log and is now trying to do the knock log. And perhaps that's why it's contradictory to that earlier section. Speaking of Steve's kind of one, two backup plan idea, a backup plan of pretty much if anything goes wrong, turn your log edge, long edge into their sword and then see what opening you can take is actually quite a good backup plan a lot of the time. Like it typically will shut down their ability to hit you completely immediately and force them to actually do something preparatory before they can hit you. Um, and then you can try and get something salvaged out of the situation. I'd buy that. All right. Then there's another section of Zettle. Don't take on 24. No, no, wait a second. This is the other bit of Maths Hammer. How there are 24 wounds. This is our word problem. Each wind of the blade, 3 times 8 makes 24, divide by 6 equals 4. Sorry, divide by 4 equals 6. Each exposure can be hit in 6 ways. What are those 6 ways? Can you break it down for me, Michael? Uh, I I think what he's saying, he doesn't ever explain this in the gloss, but it seems like what he's saying is, if there are eight windings that hit the four exposures and each winding can be one of the three wounders, then that means you have two windings with two wound, with three wounders for each opening, which makes six. Can I explain what each one is specifically? Hell no. Okay. I don't know. I, I issued an open challenge on Facebook to somebody who could video all 24 for me. I never got an actual convincing response from anyone. Didn't you do that challenge like two years ago? Yeah. And I got and a couple people who took, who took it on, but their explanations were sort of shady. Like Martin Fabian was like, I don't believe that you need blade contact for a winding. So here are my 24, and most of them didn't have a bind. 
Yeah, I, I don't think you need blade contact for a winding. I feel like RDL think you do, though. Yeah, but this ain't RDL, mate. This is the magical world of Paul. But anyways, yeah, so I think what he's saying is if you take the 24 windings and you break them down by opening, you end up with six mm. per opening, which is mm. more word problem, PDF math, and maybe not actually a particularly useful fact. Yeah, but it's got a gloss which shows you where the author's uh, interest lay. Not in explaining Uberlaufen, but in this. Um, this is how we can conclude that he was some sort of academically correct. Yeah. <laughs> or a student. Uh, a student of philosophy. All right, and this is the end of the main... Um, the main... So there's one interesting thing in this gloss section, which is yeah. that he says that many masters dismiss wines and call them from the shortened sword because they are simple and go naively. Um, and they mean that all proper fencing should be done with extended arms and strongly with the full body. And because winding is not that, then it's useless. And I certainly know many fencers who believe that, or at least fence that way. But he's saying, he says, my favorite quote, maybe, it's terrible to watch when someone stretches himself out as though he were trying to chase a rabbit. I've definitely seen beginners learning to cut that I think I could describe that way. Um, but he's, he, he, he can't finish this without giving one last jab at the dance masters and people who teach fencing wrong. And then he says, he says, if there were definitely... no art, then strong would always win. But this is not the way, because this art doesn't require great strength, which is another quote that gets passed around quite a lot in KDF. I definitely know of people who teach parries only with extended arms. I've been fortunate enough not to have met anyone like that. There are plenty of people yeah. whose cutting classes are all extended arm cuts as well. Yeah, I, I think that that's against mats. Yeah, I, I think that that's the the easy way to teach a basic cut because it removes as many complicated bendy wendy joints out of the equation as possible. I don't think it's very good fencing. But I think mm -hmm. it's especially something I see from people from a JSA background is yeah. the belief that all cuts should be done with long arms and and sort of straight um, extension. Oh, I think that the elephant in the room here is that we're talking around is Mike Edelston and his um, falling out of love with KDF because of things like right. the how. He's an example, and I say that with all love for Mike, um, of someone who definitely teaches that way. People in his sort of lineage in American HEMA teach that way. Um, I don't know, Steve, in Kendo, do they teach you to do shortened arm actions, or is it all long cuts? Um, well, pretty much for cuts, long arms. For for parries, we do uh, like the some some like parry repost type techniques are taught with extended arms, but when you actually do them, you actually you know you usually end up having bent arms. But we don't really cut to Tommy in kendo. We just. And like, if you're trying to attack somebody, obviously, like your arms are going to be extended because you want maximum reach. You so. see, I think, just thinking back through Kendo videos, of which I haven't watched that many, you see some more bent arms for things like passing counterattacks to the body and stuff, where the distance is very different, and they can become more useful to you know, John at a closer range or something. But 
when it comes to teaching cutting, I agree with the idea that it's not necessarily the best or the only way to cut, but it definitely it takes some complexity out of the cutting action if you have your hands pretty much together and your arms pretty much extended. Um, like everything's just more stable. Uh, right. I mean, that, that is muscular tension involved in maintaining your structure and so on, which is definitely easier to start out with. I think that so that is probably the best way to give people early cutting success is teaching them to cut that way first. But if you don't go beyond there, then you can get really good at a very narrow ability and miss out on a lot of what happens in fencing. I think not teaching them any HEMA at all and just giving them a sword and telling them to go cut the mat is the best way to teach cutting. But that's an art, that's a conversation you know, for another time. funny on that note is when I was learning to use a straight razor and I tried to follow all the advice on the internet for cutting with a straight razor and I would cut my face and it was miserable. And then if I said, fuck those guys, I know how to use a knife. And I just started shaving with the straight razor however I wanted to, all my problems went away. And the advice was literally like screwing up my ability to shave myself. Yeah, I... <laughs> that is a potent anecdote, and I think it's correct. I think it's a, I think it's representative. I, uh, I have definitely tried to give people advice on cutting and watch them get actively worse at cutting while I give them the correct advice, uh, <laughs> which is it's the best feeling for a teacher, right? A demoralizing feeling if ever there is one. My next cutting seminar, I'm just gonna make them buy like 300 tatami mats, and we're gonna pile them all in a corner, and people will cut as much as they want to until they're good. And I'll refuse to let anybody talk about any sort of anatomy at any hit them with a stick. No more do. structure allowed. Well, good luck. Good I luck. heard you can't get the like time weird analogies. Anymore. You can in the UK. Yeah, no, not in New Zealand. That's right now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a US problem. Sure. Um, we do. <laughs> let, let's talk international it. postage for 100 tatami mats, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Moving on from this uh, end of the vessel, the longsword, there's the other masters section, which we'll save for another episode. Then there's recital on mounted longsword fencing, recital on short sword fencing, which is the armoured fencing, which we're not going to talk about because I have nothing to say. But Jess Finley did talk about a little bit in a previous episode. Um, then we've got a conclusion section, which ends with another little tiny short poem. Do we have anything to say about that? Uh, it's interesting mostly because he acknowledges that the title and the gloss is a bad way to transfer information. And so he basically says, I know that what's written before is confusing, so I'm going to try again to make it not confusing. And he dispenses with the verse and gloss structure and basically just explains for and not the five words all over again um, in a short little like three page description. And that's it which he, he says encapsulates all of Lichtenauer, uh, but it's basically a really short version of his um, introduction. And a nice little teaching, but nothing really groundbreaking. Yeah. I've got nothing to say about it. It's just repetition of more uh, Vorschlag, Natschlag, um, people who defend themselves uh, exposed to danger. The end. Oh, there's the, the bit about all things having length and measure. Do you have anything to say about that, Michael? I mean, that comes up in the... That's in the, the general... No, that's actually in the introduction to the title, isn't it? The Yungwitalero yeah. portion. Um, 
and it also gets discussed at a bit of a bit more length in Wallerstein, um, which is yeah. kind of fun. He quite likes yeah, Wallerstein actually tries to define what it means, unlike everybody else who just quoted. Well, what does Wallerstein have to say about it? I mean, basically, oh, you squat and fence in long point. Hold on, I have the quote in here somewhere. It's pretty much that you like squat down real low and fence in long point. Let's see. If you fence with someone and come onto his sword such that you are bound, stretch your arm and your sword away from your body and set yourself down into the scales and see that you have both measure and moderation with the sword so that you may work to do against whatever you wish. Measure, that is standing behind your sword and extending yourself. Moderation, that is staying low as pictured and making yourself small with the body so you are large with the sword. Like yeah, I say, do you squat down a fence in long point? Yeah, basically. Um, and that's, I think, the very first play in Codex Wallerstein. Ooh. It's a kind of fun, like fencing tactic to do on people who've never seen someone try it before. Um, they get kind of, they get pretty confused. All right. If you're good at your long point parries, then you can make them work for it. And because you're squatting quite low, it's quite hard for them to do the like classic go underneath and tap your hands from below. Um, it's a counter that a lot of people try to do, or action that a lot of people try to do against long point. Um, so you can kind of frustrate that by squatting down pretty low. Um, and then they kind of get confused and don't really have a good answer, which is pretty funny. Um, so after this is the end of the, the summary of Lischenhauer, we then get into bits where the gaps have been filled in with various recipes and bits of magical trump, trash, bump, whatever you want to call it, broken up mm, by the... Bits. By the heading, the iron hardening, hardening recipes work. I know a blacksmith who tried them. Someone, some people have tried to reconstruct the mead recipe too, and apparently you have to add more sugar to make it taste good to modern people. But overall, it's a way to make mead that makes mead. I've never made the uh, the summoning a thousand knights work, uh, but maybe I just need to try harder. It doesn't say that you summon them though, just that you see them. So maybe you have to like you add some psychedelics to the mix, and then you're there. Yeah, probably. Or just more sugar. Just eat some, like, uh, you know, we eat infected with ergot or something, you'll be sorted. Yeah, and then you'll see all the nights you want or yeah. something. And all this stuff we talked about in um, section, episode two, episode two, what's in the book. Yep. Does... That's it. I guess there's also the other weapons in there, but they're all very short. We've talked about them a bit. Yeah. Um, does anyone have. Anything else to add before we wrap up? Nope. Nope, nope, nope. All right. Well, then, thank you for listening to Fencing by the Book. Um, I've been your host, Mike Smorge, and joining us this week have been Michael Trudister, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. Uh, what was the plan for next week, looking at the other masters section? Which is his area of expertise, isn't it? We should do the other masters section. Uh which shows up in Glasgow, which is an interesting uh, quirk. It does. Did we ever talk about fencing from the sweeps in the last season? We probably sure discussed that. He must have had something to say about detail. it. Because we could throw we that in as a contrasting teaching to fill up the whole hour. That's actually quite a good contrasting teaching. I had a... Yeah. Um, the other thing which is fun about the... Or another, another thing which is fun about the other masters is that the Glasgow copy doesn't have the line about Vorschlag. Um, it's identical yep. in every other way, but it's missing like that one couplet of of verse. Yeah, we'll get into that and what people think it means about the the uh, 
authorship of everything. Yep, intertextuality. All right, thank you very much for listening, everybody. Have a great weekend. Go do some fencing if you can. Stay safe.